God says, I am here. I am here with you. And he greets us. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit and all God's people say, Amen. And because we are reconciled by Christ to God, we are reconciled to each other and the peace that God gives to us, we get to give to each other. How awesome is that? So turn to each other and say either God's peace or the peace of Christ be with you always. campus semesters watch online. So a particular shout out tonight to the Peru group, who I know has been faithful, so shout out to Peru. And uh, I know that there are others, so please uh, text, tweet, Facebook, email, let me know, and uh, you too can get a shout out from the people. And I'm saying that because a lot of our off-campus semesters are in areas where um, there's been difficulty, and our off-campus program director, whose name is Don DeGraff, deals with a lot of this week in and week out. And so on Thursday, we are going to have an all-day praying time for our off-campus programs. And we're going to do it in the Meter Center Lecture Hall, which is where your parents had to be for Fridays at Calvin. So that's down in the meter, off the library lobby, toward the seminary. There's a little room right there. And we've set it aside all day Thursday from 7.30 in the morning until 5 at night. And we're going to have different prayer stations. So we have students who are in China. And uh, the persecuted church in China is going through some difficulty. And we're going to pray about that. And we have students in Hungary, which is very near Ukraine. And so there's difficulty there. We have students in Ghana, which is a few countries over from Liberia, where there have been concerns about Ebola, of course. Um, we have students in Honduras, which is always a bit rocky, and there are immigration issues that happen from Hondurans trying to get into the States. So those are just a few of the things. And you can go into the prayer room at any time. We're going to have set times at 7.30, noon, and 4.30, where someone will lead us through a really short liturgy. But there'll be participant ways. You can write things down and stick them on walls. And so Meter Center Lecture Hall, what day is this? Thursday. Thursday. And where's the Meter Center Lecture Hall? Great, good. So go bring friends. You can spend uh, as long as you want. You can be there. But we, um, Don is actually leaving next week to go and visit some of our sites. And so we are also going to be really praying for Don uh, because these things weigh heavy on him. And uh, the safety of all of our students is a big concern of his, as you could imagine. So we're going to be praying for that on Thursday, particularly. 
And then um, we had one student who was, uh, her mom was diagnosed with cancer the day after school started. Um, was gonna do treatment, started treatment this week, didn't go very well, and so her family actually flew her home today. And um, we're waiting on word for that. She asked that we keep that information confidential, so I won't be saying her name, but know that that's another in our list of people who are in grief, and so we'll be praying for those today too. And now is our time for our offering, which is for the Community Care Fund, Fund. also you, yes, good. We always have students who are in need, and I'm so glad that so many of you are really faithful in giving. That is a beautiful, beautiful gift back to the God who's given us so much. So let's give our offerings now. Let's pray. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. For you have placed us in a community of people who love you and who love us and who long for our flourishing. And they want that whether we're here with them or whether we are in Peru or Hungary or Honduras or China. We thank you that we are a community that extends around the globe. And so we ask a rich blessing on all of our off-campus programs, on their leaders and directors, on the students. We pray for their safety. We pray for their learning. We pray for their exposure to your church and your people who are in every corner of the globe. Stretch their imaginations for what the church is and can be. Stretch their ideas about who they are and who they can be with you. We pray for Don DeGraff. We thank you for all that he does to have our students be placed in different countries and in different cultures and speak different languages so that they are stretched. We ask that you guard his heart and mind in Christ Jesus 
So many of these things weigh heavy on him, and he wonders if he's making the right decisions to keep our students as safe as possible. And so, Lord, we pray that your deep peace will settle in and around him. Prepare him for the trips that he is to take. Grant him safety and energy and stamina. And we pray that all of our semesters have great times and come back when they're scheduled to and safe travel. We thank you for these opportunities many of us have to explore your great world. We thank you for help. <laughs> we thank you for those of us who are healthy. We thank you that we can do things like play sports and sing in choir and make music. We thank you for fun things like camping out on the commons lawn and late night with Capella and all these good things. Thank you, Lord, for fun. We pray for those in our community for whom the idea of fun seems far away, for those who are deep in grief, for those who have lost parents or a sibling. We pray for the student who's traveling home right now. Surround these families, Lord, with your tenderness and your mercy. And we pray that the promise of the resurrection won't just be an idea to them, but it will take up root deep in the marrow of their bones so they will know without a doubt that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of God the Father, so we too shall be raised. And in the meantime, while we long for that day, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you attend each of us who grieves. Surround us with people who sing for us when we can't sing and pray for us when we can't pray and who love us when we're hard to love. So we ask that we are a community that can be vulnerable with each other and talk about the things that really matter. We pray that tonight as we look at your word, as we open up again the book of James, that you, Holy Spirit, will unveil the things in us that we would rather hide. The places where our faith is a little lazy and a little weak and a little empty and maybe a lot dead. Wake us up, Holy Spirit. Enliven us through the reading and preaching of your word. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people say, Amen. So we're looking at the book of? Excellent, yes. James is in the back. Second part of James 2, page 981 in your pew Bibles. You may want to keep this open. I'll be referring to the passage from time to time. You might find it helpful to have the text in front of you. So the heck, second half of James 2, beginning to read it at 14 and reading through verse 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I by my works will show you my faith. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab, the prostitute, also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. This is the word of the Lord. So when I was a child, this season of the year, this movement from summer into fall, had certain things that happened every year. The leaves changed color. Candy corn became widely available. We carved pumpkins. And in my school, every year, there was always a lesson about Martin Luther. Yes. Yes, there was. There were, there were film strips. Do you all know what a film strip is? Beep. Next slide. Beep. Next slide. Everybody over 40, woo-woo, over 40 people. Thank you, film strip people. <laughs> Every year, we learn about Martin Luther because I went to a school not unlike this one, a school that was Christian and also had Reformed theology as its basis. And we have very few heroes in the Reformed faith that we really know by name, but Martin Luther was one of them. Every year we learn about Martin Luther. Every year we learn that he was a German, that he was being trained to be a lawyer. We learn that there was this big thunderstorm and a lightning bolt struck right near him and he cried out, Saint Anna, save me and I'll become a monk. And we were always reminded like about saints and then we were reminded like don't make hasty vows. Like that was a little side teaching. <laughs> because Martin then ended up becoming a monk. And he became like the uber monk. Because the Catholic Church at that time taught that you had to work really hard in order to get into heaven. You had to get all the sin out of you. And you didn't want to die with any sin in you because then, you know, you might not go to hell, but you'd probably end up in purgatory and you definitely wouldn't go to heaven. And so Martin would work and he would beat himself. And he would fast and he would confess everything all the time because he thought he had to work so hard to get God to like him. But being a monk, he also read a lot of scripture. And as he was reading scripture, he began to read more and more about grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so no one can boast. And he began to think, oh, the church needs to change. We, we don't have this right. Like, it's by grace that we're saved. Our works don't save us. And so he, uh, he wrote a blog post, uh, the 1570 version. What he did was he wrote these all out, 
95 different ideas about how the church needed to change. And he put them on the, the internet of the time. He put them on the door of the church. He pounded them on the door of the church. And he did this on October 31, 1517, which is why in my childhood, it's not so much Halloween, it was Reformation Day. Reformation Day. Can I have a witness? Is there anybody else who had a childhood like this? All right. Yes, 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 yes. If you dressed up for Halloween, it was either as Martin Luther or his wife, Catherine. That was all you got. So Reformation Day was a big, big deal, and I learned all these different facts about Martin Luther growing up and who he was and his wife and his kids and his hymns. And every year on October 31, we sing the same hymn, which is... A mighty fortress. Thank you. Well done, Ken. Thank you. Singing. A mighty fortress is our God, right? He wrote other ones, but that's the one we really know and like a lot. But what I didn't know until later in life was that Martin Luther hated the book of James. Hated it. Hated it. Hated it. He called it the epistle of straw. That's hard. Right? He said, it's worth, it's worth nothing. It's worth straw. Because if you've spent your entire life saying that works do not save you, your faith saves you, and you've got a book in the Bible that says, can faith save you? Faith without works is dead. You're like, ah, James. <laughs> and so Martin Luther hated the book of James because he thought it worked against the core truth of the gospel was that Christ is enough. We just sang that. Christ is enough. And so we read James and we kind of wonder, was Martin Luther right? I mean, was James here writing against Paul? Was he trying to clarify something that Paul had gotten wrong? Was James trying to be a little feisty here? James never read Paul. James, written first. Paul's stuff, written later. Paul probably never read James. We are unsure if they actually even met. And the, the audiences that they're writing to are totally different. So James is writing to Jews. Remember last week we learned about the Jews who believed in Jesus and Messiah and how they came together. And we had the rich Jews and the many, many peasants and the zealots all trying to come together in this one community. Well, that was challenging enough. But then Paul is writing later to groups of Jews, which are all a mix of all these people, plus Gentiles, and trying to figure out how they're going to get together. And they had this idea that the Gentiles should follow the law, and that's how they could work their way into the life of the church. And Paul was like, no, 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 no. They don't need to do the law. It's by grace you're saved through faith. So Paul is trying to answer a very different set of questions than James is trying to answer. Last week, we read the first half of James 2, and you can't understand the second half of James 2 without reading the first half of James 2. And we talked about the rich and the poor. Remember this? And how their relationships were transactional. What can you do for me? The poor people would try to get in good with the rich people because then the rich might make their lives a little easier. The rich would try to see for the poor, like who is worthy of being hired and if they could have them as a day laborer in their vineyard. There were all these dynamics that were happening all the time. And James said, 
No, you are not transactional. You are a family. You lay your life down for each other. You give and you don't expect anything back, right? That was last week. So James 2, starting at verse 14, follows from all of that. It follows from all of that, where he's saying to the rich people, you can't dishonor the poor. That's not how this works. These are your people. These are in your family. You have to honor them. You have to take care of them. What good is it if you say you have faith, but you don't have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and lets you do not supply their bodily needs, what good is that? So faith by itself, when it has no works, is dead. You see, James is talking about what happens after you begin to follow Jesus as Messiah. He's not talking about salvific faith, the faith that gets you into heaven in the sweet by and by when you die. He was talking with people who believed that just by living as Jews, they'd got it covered. I was circumcised. I go to the temple three times a year for the festival. If I'm in town in Jerusalem, I go at nine and at three. I obey all the Ten Commandments. My children grow up knowing the Psalms. I'm in all the bases. I'm good. And now I know that Jesus is the Messiah. So I am set. There's really nothing more I need to do. My life is fine the way it is. And James says, no, 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 no. That's not what Jesus taught us. Jesus said to us, it's not good enough that you just don't commit adultery. You actually shouldn't even look lustfully at other people. Jesus said, it's not good enough that you're not killing people, although thank you for that. <laughs> he said, don't even get angry at people. And at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, they're like, they're like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rains came down and the floods came up and the winds blew and beat against the house, but the house on the rock stood firm. Whoever hears these words of mine and doesn't put them into practice, they're like a man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, and the floods came up, and the winds blew and beat against it, and it fell with a great crash. Do you hear Jesus echoed in James? Be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Everything we've got swirling around here in James 2 is an echo of the Sermon on the Mount. Be doers of the word, not merely hearers. The faith you've grown up in, just being a Jewish person who now says Jesus is Messiah, that's not going to get you anywhere. You need to be growing. You need to be moving. You need to be growing up into faith. Your faith needs to be lived out. One scholar said if Paul, the Apostle Paul in his writings is about obstetrics, about what it takes to be born in faith, James is about everything from pediatrics to geriatrics. How you grow up into faith. How you keep moving into faith. You are never stagnant in faith. And if you're not growing, you're dying. 
Paul is talking about the stuff that comes before you are converted. Works don't really matter then. It doesn't earn you anything, but works are an expression of the life that you've been given in Christ. That's what he's talking about, faith being expressed through how you live. And then James gives two really interesting examples. Did you notice the two Bible characters he refers to? Abraham and Rahab. Abraham and Rahab, very interesting comparison work going on there. So Abraham, the first Jew, the Jewest of the Jews, you couldn't get more Jew than Abraham. He was the first one. God plucks him out of obscurity and says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. It's going to be fantastic. And of all the examples that James could have picked from the life of Abraham to say, oh, look, he expressed his faith here, and oh, look, he expressed his faith here, and oh, look, he expresses, he chooses the sacrifice of Isaac, or the almost sacrifice. Many of you know this story. He's waited years to finally have an heir, Isaac. God comes to him and he says, take your son Isaac, your only son, whom you love, and go three days journey into the wilderness to Mount Moriah, to the place that I will show you, and there place Isaac on the altar and sacrifice him. And Abraham does it. He packs up, he packs the donkeys, he finds the spot, he leaves the servants, he takes Isaac up to the top, to Mount Moriah. He puts him on the altar, he wraps his hands and his feet, and he raises the knife, and then God says, wait, that's enough. And James says, it was credited to him as a righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. And Jews and Christians have been puzzling over that ever since. The other example, Rahab. If you couldn't get more Jewish than Abraham, you couldn't get less Jewish than Rahab. Some of you know this story. It's from Joshua 2. Joshua is the newly crowned leader of the Israelites because Moses is dead. He's going in to take over the promised land. The first city they get to is Jericho. So he sends two spies in and says, go check it out. Let us know what's going on in Jericho. And the spies come in and they go to the first place they can find. And it's a brothel or a hostel or a hotel or an inn. And Rahab runs it. She's a prostitute. And there are people from Jericho who see that these guys have gone into her house. And so they come and they say, hey, we saw those guys go into your house. And we know they're here to spy on us. The king of Jericho himself says, hey, we need those guys. You let, you bring them to us. And she says, oh, you know, they were here, uh, but they left. I bet if you run fast, though, you could get them. So go on, go get them. And they all leave, and the, the pursuers are gone. They shut the doors, and she's hidden them upstairs on the roof. What's really interesting is that you have Rahab, a woman, a prostitute, most likely very poor, 
And she goes up to these men, and before they go to sleep, she says to them, look, we've heard all about you. We know all about your God. We know that he split apart the water. We know that he helped you conquer the Amorites. We know that he's given this into your hands and we melt with fear before you. And then she says this, I know that the Lord your God is Lord of heaven above and earth below. She's only heard about him. She's never met him. She wasn't there when the sea was parted. She wasn't there, any of it. She's only heard stories. And she says, I confess, your God is the Lord of heaven above and earth below. And so she makes a deal with him. And she says, I know you're going to come in and you're going to take the city. But when you do, will you save me and my family? And they say, yes. The two examples James chooses, Abraham could not be more in, Rahab could not be more out. In both instances, could the stakes be any higher? Sacrificing your firstborn son, laying your life and the life of your family in the hands of people that you've only heard about, trusting that they will make do on this promise they've just made to you. These are high-stakes examples, and they include everybody who falls between someone who's like Ahab, Ahab, <laughs> Abraham, and someone who's like Rahab. Anybody who falls in the, in the between, this applies to you. So James has really high-stakes examples here when he's just talking about being nice to poor people. Why? I mean, it seems a little disproportionate. The binding of Isaac, like, whoa. Rahab, Jericho, walls come tumbling down. Whoa, these are big, powerful stories, James. I think you could just say, be nice to poor people. You didn't have to, like, pull out all the stops. But remember we talked last week about how the rich hung out with the other rich people and the poor hung out with the other poor people and the zealots kind of mixed in. But if you were a rich person, if you were a rich Jew and you had aligned yourselves with Roman law and you had aligned yourselves with the methods of power and everybody knew that poor people were supposed to suck up to you, and you were walking down the street one day with your other rich friends. And you saw someone on the street from your Jesus' Messiah group. And it was a widow. She had two kids. The temptation for you would be to say to her, be warm and well-fed, because that would cost you nothing. But imagine if all your rich friends saw you reach into your bag and take out a meal that you'd obviously planned on giving away and giving it to this woman. And then reaching into another bag and taking out a new cloak and giving it to her and calling her by name. And she called you by name. 
And maybe somebody in your group of rich friends thinks, that's incredibly weird. Also, I think I've seen that woman with those Messiah people, with those Jesus people. Is our friend hanging out with those Jesus people? Because that's a weird bunch of people. And why is he being nice to her? Doesn't he know that she's supposed to suck up to him to like win his favor, to get him as a patron of some kind? This is all messed up. So doing this kind of behavior in front of everybody was taking an incredible risk. They could push him out of business. They could push him out of the temple. All of his connections could be gone. Everything could dry up like that. The stakes of faith were very high. Faith in the book of James is living out your obedience even when it costs you. Living out your obedience even when it costs you. We have professors here who have standing offers from big universities, places where they could make more money and have uh, little research elves to help them do all their projects, and life in lots of ways as an academic might be better for them. But they turn the offers down because they do not want to have anything in their life in which they can't talk about Jesus and philosophy or mathematics or theater or music. It's obedience that costs them. You have students who are sitting right around you right now who've been given the invitation to cheat. I know a website and you give them a fee and they will write your paper for you. Hey, we've got last year's test. I don't know how we got it, but we've got it. Do you want to see it? Hey, I took the class at 8. I can give you the answers for 10.30. And these students turn it down again and again and again because they would rather take an honest C plus than a dishonest A minus. That's obedience that costs them. There are people that you worship with on Sunday mornings who live intentionally simple lives and they drive old cars so that they can give not just 10%, but 20% or 30% or 40% of their income away. That's obedience that costs them. There are people you know, people in your communities of faith, people in your extended families, people who in their 20s were dating and had the option for a long-term relationship with someone, but when push came to shove, that person said no to it because the person that they were dating was not where they were as far as their commitment to Jesus Christ. And you have seen that person live out life as a single person in obedience and faith in a Christian community that focuses on family 
And their obedience because of that has cost them. What about us? What about you? Where's the place in your life right now that your faith feels a little lazy? A little empty? A little dead? This is why the church has on the top of its top 10 list of reasons why people don't join it hypocrisy. Because we all like the happy parts of the Christian life. We all like it when people pray for us and Friday chapels and the love of God. But when obedience actually costs us, Eugene Chu, who's a pastor out in uh, Washington, just wrote a book called Overrated, How the Church is More in Love with the Idea of Saving the World Than Actually Saving the World. And the book came to him because he went on a trip to a different country, and he thought, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to have you know, like a sermon idea or a blog post or something, and I'll have some good idea about this. But instead, the Holy Spirit got into his heart and started to say to him, you need to give up a year's pay. He was like, can I just have the blog post? Because I just... A year's pay. And he said it took him three years to come to terms with what God was actually asking of him because he didn't really want to do it. And he thought, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. If there are things I'm not willing to lay down. So he began to think hard about what it would mean if he was obedient to the point where it cost him. Overrated. And we think about these things that the Lord is calling us to do. Maybe there's a relationship in your life and you know this friend or this romance or whatever it is is not leading you toward the kingdom, but you're kind of too lazy to break it off. Or you hear these things about racial reconciliation and you think, well, I'm nice to people who don't look like me or whatever. But to actually invest in a relationship with someone who's different than you, to actually attend lectures or pursue learning about this and actually change your behavior, I don't know. Or, you know, I'll do the whole creation care thing and I'll recycle and I'll throw my plastic bottle in the right kind of place, but you mean I'd actually have to change my driving habits? I don't really know about that. The bus? You mean I would have to change what I eat even? Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is nudging you right now about, whatever it is where he says your faith is a little lazy right here, we could come up with a thousand reasons why we don't want to change it. So why would we? Why would you? Well, that's where we need to remember those two examples that James gave us. Abraham. After this event, he gets to see Isaac grow up. 
And the Lord blesses him and blesses him and blesses him. And he sends his servant off to get a wife for Isaac. And his servant goes, and as part of the spiel to get the girl to come back with him, he says, the Lord has blessed my master in every way. And Isaac gets to marry Rebekah, and they have kids, and then they have grandkids, and those grandkids, some of them become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Abraham's original concern that God wouldn't follow up on his promise comes true. He has relatives, sands of the seashore, stars in the heaven. He is blessed beyond measure. He stepped out in incredible faith, and God poured blessings down on him in response. Rahab, the spies go in, and they take her and their family, and they, it says at the end of chapter 6 in Joshua that she lived in Israel for the rest of her life, but that was not the end of her story because Rahab marries an Israelite man named Salmon. And the two of them have a baby, and they name him Boaz. And Boaz grows up, and he marries somebody named Ruth. And Ruth and Boaz get together, and they get married, and they have a baby, and they name him Obed. Close, a generation two or soon. They name him Obed, and Obed grows up, and he gets married, and he has a baby, and he's named, there you go, Jesse. And Jesse grows up, and he gets married, and he has lots of babies, and the youngest baby's name is David. So Rahab who couldn't be more outside of the kingdom of God, is not only brought in, but she is woven into the life of the king of Israel. And then, she's not just limited to the Old Testament because her influence spills over into the New Testament because she is listed also, of course, as the ancestor of Jesus. Matthew 1, Rahab. Could she have known in that moment when she said, I know that your God is the Lord of heaven above and the earth below, could she have any idea what her life was going to hold? Did either of them have any idea that their obedience would be talked about for generation from generation to generation to generation? What James is saying in this very dense passage of scripture is that when we step out and live a life of animated faith, of lively faith, God stands ready to bless us. And some of us may see blessings in our lifetime. Abraham was incredibly wealthy. James does not promise that, to be clear. That is not a promise of scripture. But we also don't know how our obedience is going to impact the generations to come. We have no idea. But we can see in Scripture that it happens again and again and again. God calls us to step out in faith because he can't wait to bless us. He can't wait to show us what he's going to do on the other side. And he gives us in this moment the power of the Holy Spirit who can help us to have the courage and the discipline to get over the lazy parts of our faith, to see very clearly where it is that we are weak and we need to be strong, where we are dying and where we need to come to life.
And we have our Jesus. We have Jesus who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself and God exalted him that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every knee confess that he is Christ the Lord to the glory of God the Father. If there is any time when we think our faith is failing or it's not worth the risk or we can't live the way God has asked us to live, he says, I am with you. I am here. I have done it. I will show you how. So I don't know where the lazy parts are in your faith. But I encourage you to tell them to somebody. Find your chapel buddy, your accountability partner, your study group, your housemates. Where does your faith need to come alive? And how do you want to ask God to help you? Because faith without works is dead. But faith lived in obedience to the amazing triune God is alive and life-giving. Live faith. Will you pray with me? God, how grateful we are for our spiritual ancestor, Abraham who stepped out in faith again and again. How grateful we are for our spiritual ancestor, Rahab, who could see you coming from a long way away and knew who you were and was willing to give her life to know you better. And we thank you for James, who wants nothing more than for this Christian community to live out what their Messiah Jesus asked them to live out and we thank you above all for our Jesus who invited us to build our house on rock, to be doers of the word, to be disciples, to be alive. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.